Welcome to Geocache Adventures with me, Shadow Dragon One, where I discuss geocaching and my adventures with it. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts or on the Geocache Adventures Facebook page. You can also sign up for the Geocache Adventures newsletter, which features upcoming episode information, behind the scenes articles, and other fun articles and information. This interview was recorded using Zoom and may sound different than other podcast audio. Hello, everybody. It's Amy Shadow Dragon One, and with me today is Jeff from Cash the Line. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So, first off, what's your geocaching name? <laughs> My caching name is The Bruce Zero. The Bruce and, Zero. Uh, yeah, with the zero. All the other numbers are usually taken. The Bruce was taken, but the Bruce Zero, it's never taken. <laughs> so, I always like to know how did you get started geocaching? Well, when I picked up my first smartphone, that was the uh, iPhone 3GS, uh, I think the same thing everybody does, you ask around, hey, what games should I get? What apps should I get? And uh, somebody mentioned, oh, you should try out this uh, geocaching thing. And it's kind of new. So it's like, okay. So I downloaded it and then didn't really think twice about it for a week or two until <laughs> I went for um, uh, a vacation, a trip up to the tip of the Bruce Peninsula in Ontario. And uh, so it happened about a couple weeks after I actually got the application that I found my first cache uh, up in Tobermory. And uh, 10 years later, I did a, another video uh, looking back at that first cache find and doing a whole lot more research about it. And it was something you don't think about the first time you find a cache, the, the backstory, the reasons why it was created and, and that kind of experience. So that was, that was really cool. But yeah, that was 2009. <laughs> so it's been a couple years. Just a few. <laughs> so what kind of stats do you have now at this point? I am sitting at just over 17,000 fines. And uh, it, it, it might sound like a lot, but uh, Southern Ontario is very populated. <laughs> there are power trails everywhere. <laughs> there are uh, rivers with uh, long series of geocaches as well. And we often have, during the summer months at least, we often have uh, events and gatherings where people can come out paddle paddle events. So we'd go oh, down cool. segments of the rivers or around little lakes and ponds where people have placed series of geocaches. So lots of ways to get a lot of fines. <laughs> um, I'm, I believe now two DT combinations away from 40 fizzy grids. Wow. And, uh, and my longest streak is about 366 days. Well, it is 360 days, 366 days, one year straight. <laughs> Wow. I didn't find a cash the day before, and I didn't find a cash the day after. 366 on the nose. That was the plan. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so you're joining us today to talk about challenge caches. But before we get started, I wanted to hear a little bit about your vlog that you do, Cash the Line. Mm -hmm. So how did you get started with that? Well, I've kind of always been into uh, photography. Um, I had, used to have a, a DSLR, which was really, really nice. Um, so I did a lot of photography. And when I was getting into geocaching, I started you know, sharing nice photos of trips and locations and everything uh, on Instagram and Twitter. And I even started up a little blog um, to explain and share some of those experiences as well. It didn't really take off. It was just a quick little thing to be able to share experiences. Um, but it was based on this Iron Man theme, which was inspired by that daily geocaching, consecutive caching for a year. Um, so yeah, once I'd finished that, I started the blog. And, um, and then around that time as well, my mother had passed away. Uh, and so um, I kind of carry on, carried on with that theme. And then I went to Iceland. And when I went to Iceland and I had that four-day amazing solo adventure, uh, I had taken a few little video clips and even tried to do a live stream. Well, I did, I did a live stream from one location and wanted to do one from another. But after that trip, I kind of realized that there's some creative outlet here. So I took those clips and uh, played around with it for a bit. I discovered that the PC I had at the time was powerful enough to edit video. <laughs> and so I put some stuff together and eventually uh, on one little geocaching trip, I had uh, intended to record a bunch of the caches and the fun that we had and put that together. And that was my first video that I published on the channel. 
at that time it was chasing the Iron Man, so it was still themed around the Iron Man, but uh, that eventually became Cash the Line because of potential legal implications with the word <laughs> Iron Man. <laughs> I hear that they're very, very tight about that word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's better to be safe than sorry on that one. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you decide what geocaches you're going to put on your vlog? Well, I, there are quite a few... Um, vloggers and, and people who share geocaching videos and, and whatnot on social media. So I kind of, I kind of lean towards the, uh, the experience and the adventure. So it's not so much, ooh, this looks like a really cool geocache that I want to share and maybe other people can make more like it. It's more um, sharing um, the, the beauty of nature, the fun and the excitement of going on the adventure to get to the geocache, um, amazing locations, um, and Ontario is huge, so we've got loads of loads of places to share. <laughs> but yeah, I kind of like to focus more on hopefully inspiring people to just get outside, enjoy the outdoors, be active, and uh, the fun that geocaching um, affords and inspires to be able to do all that. Um, and I mean, there could be some very neat geocaches interspersed in there, some fun, creative uh, uh, gadget caches and, and whatnot. But um, yeah, I tend to focus more on the adventure and the experience than the container itself. That's awesome. It sounds like there's a lot on, on your channel. We're going to get a lot more of the actual outdoors experience, the wilderness, the hiking, mm. uh, a lot. Fewer. Road trips. Yeah, not so many LPCs or urban type caches, kind of more yeah. of that what you might call the, the wilderness type caches in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, very cool. So challenge caches. Mm -hmm. I do recall talking about this on Clubhouse and you were in the group. And if I do recall mm -hmm. right, you absolutely love these. Oh, I do. I love them so much. <laughs> so... For somebody who may not be familiar with them, what is a challenge cache? So a challenge cache is very similar to a traditional geocache. Um, at this point right now, they are basically, you can find the cache like any other cache uh, and you can sign it and um, they are intended to be at the posted coordinates. There are some exceptions, but generally they're at the coordinates. You go find it and sign it. The only difference is in order to log it as found online, or in other words, you've completed everything you need to to log it as found, you also have to qualify for a challenge that the cash owner has put out in the listing, um, in the description. So it does help to read the description. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, um, yeah, so they could be anything from like finding a certain number of geocaches in order to qualify to log it as found online, or a certain number of cache types, or maybe it's a traveling one where you've got to find caches in a certain number of states or provinces or countries or continents. Um, they could be super easy or they could be really, really difficult uh, for newbies and sometimes for the very, very experienced veterans. <laughs> but um, yeah, the, the thing that I like most about them is that they get you, um, in so many words, trying things that you may never have tried before. You know, we often say that with geocaching, it takes you places you'd never have been before, or you'd, you would never have known existed if it weren't for geocaching. Challenge caches, in my view, are kind of like that to geocaching. They get you doing things that you probably wouldn't have if you were just casual caching. Is so that part of why you goals. enjoy them so much? Yeah. Yeah. And it might be also because there are so many geocaches in Ontario that there's no shortage of caches to find. <laughs> so this kind of adds an extra layer of, uh, of, of goals and, um, and experiences to have while geocaching. Okay. So if somebody wants to try to do a challenge cache, how do they even figure out which ones are challenge caches? Because there's not an attribute. So Help us out here. What's the best way to try to locate these things on, on the website before we even try to go locate them in the field? Right. Yeah. There, well, there isn't a cache type. There is an attribute. Oh, there is an uh, attribute. Okay. I had yes, that wrong. Yes, there is now. It's, it's relatively new. It was newly okay. introduced. Um, but uh, for the most part, 
every challenge cache should have challenge in the title. Uh, they're listed as the mystery cache type, so the big question mark. Um, and now there's an attribute, and all active challenge caches in the world should have that attribute on it now. So if awesome. you are a premium member, if you're a premium member, you can search by attribute and you can locate those challenge caches. Um, that's about all you need to identify them. It's a mystery cache. It can be any DT. Uh, it has challenge in the title and the challenge attribute. So then the challenge is completing the challenge. That's right. <laughs> we, we, we call it an ALR or an additional logging requirement. Okay. Um, way back, before, even before I was caching in 2009, uh, people, cache owners used to use caches. And then in the description, they added a little bit of a qualification and you had to qualify and provide the proof in order to log it as found. And the owners would basically police that and delete logs if you didn't qualify. That was before there were any kind of rules about challenge caches and what could or couldn't be allowed. So they termed that as an additional logging requirement. So even if you had found and signed the log sheet, you wouldn't be able to log it online unless you did this additional requirement. So they took that concept and called it challenge caches. And now we have what we have today. Uh, challenge caches, you've got the project GC checker on there, which makes it a lot easier to determine if you qualify. And uh, that's, this is all post moratorium, which was about a one year period when they shut everything down and said, okay, we need to come up with some kind of uh, um, structure for challenge caches that everybody can agree on. It makes it less, uh, or it makes it more accessible while potentially maybe a little less flexible and creative, but allows more people to, uh, to enjoy it. One of the things that, uh, that I particularly miss is the ability to uh, have challenge caches based on, say, the text of a cache title. So you had to find, say, a certain number of geocaches with a bird in the title, a bird name in the title. Problem is, those types of, of challenge caches were so... Uh, so prolific that a lot of people got tired of the bookkeeping required because you yeah. have to find you have to find caches that would qualify that would be qualifiers for the challenge and you had to keep track of everything yourself and it was just so much like paperwork that was one of the things that uh, that HQ decided we're not going to allow anymore so these days it's all about statistics if you can okay. see it in your statistics and you can calculate it from your statistics generally speaking, it's allowable. Are there still some of those, um, like the type you were talking about that are grandfathered in once you have to do bookkeeping yourself, are they still out there, just not new ones being published? Right, they are out there, they are grandfathered, and as they're getting archived, they're disappearing. <laughs> but um, <laughs> Ontario, we have quite a few people, geocachers, who are uh, very active. And so we've got so many challenge caches in Ontario. Um, I started to keep a couple of bookmark lists to try to track them. So I've got my version one bookmark list of all of the challenge caches that still exist pre-moratorium. So the old guidelines, the old yeah, rules. Okay. And then I've got uh, another bookmark list for everything after the moratorium with all the new bookmark, the new uh, uh, challenge rules. Okay. A little way to help organize them and, and understand that, you know, anything pre-moratorium might be a little more tedious and in my opinion, perhaps a little more fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the, with the newer challenges, they, uh, they tend to be more geared towards people who are really uh, active geocachers, uh, which is why it's great as well to remind people, you know, if you're creating a challenge cache, don't be afraid to make a, a simple one to make it for people who are new to geocaching, like a challenge cache that requires you to have 100 finds. <laughs> you know, it seems so simple to people who've been caching for a year, but, you know, that could be a big goal for somebody who's just starting out and you get that, uh, that feeling of accomplishment when you can find it, sign it, and log it online. <laughs> yeah, I've seen, there's a couple in my area where it's fine. 5,000 caches and I'm mm. a little shy of 300. So I have a really <laughs> long time to get to before mm -hmm. I can actually log that as found. And then right. when I'm looking at it, you know, somebody that doesn't get to go caching that often, it feels like, well, 
what's the point of trying to do this? Because this may even get archived before I ever qualify for it. Right. And so one of the, one of the things I like to remind people to do is that if you're passing challenge caches, you can still find them and you can still sign them. And then you can say, add them to a bookmark list so that you remember that you've already found it. You just don't qualify yet. And then who knows, maybe two, three years down the line, you'll qualify. And then right then you can log it as found. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a quirk of the challenge cache concept because you, you can find it and sign it before you qualify. And uh, okay. so, yeah. And, and, and I've had to do that before. There was a trip that I went to a number of years ago out to Seattle for HQ. And there was a little power trail of high difficulty challenge caches. And at that time, uh, my friends and I, we found them all and I qualified for one. Oh. <laughs> and I think <laughs> I slowly qualified for them over the years. And I think there's one or two that I'm still working on. But, you know, once you sign it, you don't have to go back there. You can just qualify and log it as found. So it gives you kind of a, an ongoing goal as well. Like if you know you've found one that says you qualify when you find 10,000 caches, then you know that you've got this goal in the future. I can reach 10,000 finds and I'll be rewarded with logging this challenge caches found. That's good to know. And the creating the bookmark list of those ones that you've found but not logged online yet is, is a really great idea because otherwise, how do you remember which ones you've found physically yeah. and need to exactly. log still? So other than Project GC for checking qualifications, are there other sites or other ways besides doing it manually to check that you qualify for a challenge cache? Well, Project GC is the only officially recognized way to provide automated proof. Okay. Um, but there are, there are other tools. Um, if you know that it like say it's a simple one like again for example finding a certain number of caches you can view your profile statistics and that will give you a, a brief rundown of how many caches you found and the breakdown of types and sizes all that stuff so if it's a relatively simple challenge you could just say it's visible in my stats and that okay. would be enough because it's it is evidence it's visible and it's public um but for the pre-moratorium challenges, a lot of the time people would make use of an app called GSAC or Geocaching Swish Army Knife. It's a Windows only app, but uh, it, and it's a little, there's a learning curve to using it, but it's like a, your own local offline database of all of your caching history. And because it's a database, you can run algorithms and scripts and all sorts of stuff to, to parse out the data however you want to see it. And so a lot of people use that application with macros to search for qualifying caches and to um, summarize qualification for challenge caches if they found them. Um, otherwise, I mean, any other website that'll provide statistics can help you determine if you qualify for the more simpler challenge caches. Um, but again, for the post moratorium, so for all of the current and new challenge caches, they are required to have a project GC checker in the description. And that's the easy way. You click on that, run it against your profile name, and it'll tell you if you qualify or not. That's okay. the easiest way. And for anybody not familiar with Project GC, it is, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it is a third-party website that has been approved by um, Geocaching Headquarters. Yes. So they, are, they started out as their own website. Uh, they imported data. Uh, and eventually they gained access to develop with, uh, H with the geocaching API, which is a backend system that uh, geocaching HQ provides for third parties. So now Project GC, like I said, is an approved partner and they have uh, a much easier access to the entire worldwide geocaching database, which is how they can maintain such massive quantity of statistics and data about all of the geocaches and geocachers worldwide. <laughs> It's project-gc.com, the website. And you just have to follow their checker link. It'll take you right there. And you just put in your geocaching username as yeah. the username in Project GC. And it'll link up and validate if you qualify or not, correct? Yes. And there is a, uh, a bonus as well if you pay for a membership on Project GC. Uh, if you're not a member, if you're just a basic user, then I believe it's three checks per day. It's either three or 10. 
uh, free challenge checkers checks per day. Okay. Uh, if if you do purchase a membership, which is again relatively cheap, cheaper than I think the uh, premium membership of geocaching, then it gives you access to a huge host of functionality. If you love challenge caches, you pretty much have to have a membership on Project GC. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good to know. Okay, so we've talked about finding challenge caches and qualifying for them. What about if you want to hide a challenge cache? Is there different rules to hiding challenge caches versus hiding your typical traditional cache? Yeah, so technically, like I said, they are pretty much the same as a, a general geocache. So if you're hiding one, you treat it just like a traditional cache. You go out, place the, place the container, take the coordinates as best you can, come back, create the listing, and then you're almost ready to go. If you want to make it a challenge cache, then you have to also uh, come up with your idea, first of all. And, um, and then you can take it to the Project GC forums, because that's where the script writers are, the people who make all of the functionality for the checking, and say, I've got this listing, this is a GC code, and this is what I'd like to do. Uh, can you make a script for it? And generally, they are very good at saying whether it's possible or not, or whether you're allowed to or not. Uh, and then they'll create the checker, give you all the links and information, and you can drop that into your listing. If everything is well and the reviewer says good to go, that's it. The only other additional requirements, and this may vary from region to region, but generally speaking, you have to qualify for the challenge yourself now, and you have to have or provide a list of a certain number of other geocaches in your region, so usually a state or a province, um, and who already also qualify. Uh, and then as long as there are qualifying caches so that it's possible to qualify, that's usually enough. For Ontario, you have to, be, you have to qualify yourself and have 10 other geocachers who already qualify. That's another oh. post-moratorium rule. Uh, I, ha I have one pre-moratorium challenge cache that I place that I love that I don't yet personally qualify for. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's, it's on my list. I've got to qualify for it, but uh, it's a lot of work. Uh, I've got so to that ask, was, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> it's the uh, Iron Man Bingo Challenge. It's a five by five grid of uh, easy to very difficult consecutive day caching challenges or goals. And one of them, for example, is five days of scuba caches in oh, a world, wow. consecutive caches. And uh, <laughs> depending on how many scuba caches you got in your area, it might not be very easy to accomplish. Um, yeah. As opposed to if you live in Nevada, they have power trails and they slap the, uh, the scuba cache, uh, scuba gear required attribute on thousands of them. So <laughs> that would be easier there. <laughs> uh, but here it not? was, yeah, here it was kind of reasonable. Plus being a bingo grid, when I created that, I made sure that there was at least one row or one sequence of five that was relatively easy to qualify to be able to log and sign and log the cache online. But to fill the entire grid, oh boy. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But that's a pre-moratorium. So yeah, the, the rules are a little different post-moratorium than they were pre. So that's the, the thing to keep in mind is that they want challenge caches to be um, relatively accessible for, uh, for newcomers and still fun for veterans. And so coming up with a challenge that's fun within the guidelines could be a challenge in itself, but yeah. uh, ultimately <laughs> it, it pays off hopefully with the experience that people get in, in the journey to qualification. <laughs> so if you have to list so many, 10 or however many geocachers that also qualify for the cache already, how do you go about tracking that down? Do you just have to go know people and say, hey, guys, you know, post on a Facebook group who qualifies for this, or is there a different way to, to get that information? You could do that, but um, generally speaking, once you've asked for the checker, you can use the checker. So you can put in anybody's geocaching username, run the checker, and then find out if they qualify. Okay. It's easy... If, you, if it's just a statistical thing that you can see on a public profile, you can just go to their profile and then see if they qualify or not and then just jot it down. Uh, but for some more difficult ones where you kind of have to use the checker, then uh, 
yeah, that's another reason why if you're placing challenge caches, it'd be good to have the membership because then you can check as many times as you want. Um, I know there've been a couple of times when I wanted to change, uh, to place a challenge cache, but I didn't have the membership. So you could only run 10 checks a day. And then I had to wait until the next day to continue then checking for other check. people. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. So as somebody who finds and hides challenge caches, can you give us some advice for if you're trying to find challenge caches for the first time? Like you're not necessarily new to geocaching, but new to challenge caches. What kind of advice can you give us to that? That's an interesting question. <laughs> it would depend on how long you've been geocaching. <laughs> I, I tend to find that... Um, if you have, say, tens of thousands of finds, the chances of you already qualifying for most challenges are very high. Um, some of the more creative recent challenges uh, may have things like um, a location boundary restriction, which means that even if you have 30,000 plus finds, you may not qualify because you haven't qualified in this particular county or region. Okay. Uh, so they can still pose goals for veterans. Uh, if they decide to start challenge caching. But generally, I would say if you are a newer geocacher and you hear about challenge caches, most people also recommend look at the challenge caches around you first because especially for some of the pre-moratorium ones, if there's things like averages, then it would be good to aim to qualify for challenges first. For one, because you've got many more caches you can find. Mm -hmm. um, but say you have to have 50% of your finds are at least mystery caches. If you've got 30,000 finds and 25,000 are traditionals, it's going to be a lot harder to hit that goal. Yeah. So again, those are older challenges, so they aren't around as much anymore. But uh, a good rule of thumb is if you like the idea of challenge caches, take a look at what's around, look for lower difficulties and work your way up. Um, if you've already got many, then they should be easier already. You should probably already get the green checker, the uh, success on the challenge checker. But uh, if not, you could do like what I do, and I keep a separate document of all of the challenges I'm working on and my current status. <laughs> nice. And then I know if I go, if you go on vacation, this is another good tip. If you go on vacation, check to see if there are rare caches that will qualify towards challenges. Um, for example, Jasmer is a very popular challenge to try to complete where you've mm -hmm. got to find uh, a cache that was placed in every month and every year since geocaching began in May of 2000. So if you're going on vacation and you don't have a Jasmer completed yet up to the current month, like the current month and year, mm -hmm. then, uh, then look for those old caches because if you are passing by one, you're going to kick yourself if you don't find it. And then you get back home and be like, it was right there. <laughs> so look, look for rare caches uh, for difficult challenges if you're on vacation. And then you might be able to work your vacation itinerary around going to find that cache. <laughs> That's a great tip mm. for caching on vacation in general. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there anything else about challenge caches we should know? Try to enjoy them. I mean, it seems kind of obvious, but uh, there are people that will not like challenge caches because, well, I've signed, I found and signed the cache. I should be able to log it online. But you know, if you think about it, it's it's another aspect of geocaching that um, doesn't necessarily appeal to everybody. And there's tons of experiences in geocaching like that. Everybody enjoys a different thing about geocaching. So when it comes to challenge caches. I like to look at it as a new goal to accomplish. So best way to enjoy that is to think about the theme and have fun qualifying. It's, it's a different type of adventure and it's, it's longer and drawn out, but you get that satisfaction of the green check and the success at the end when you finally qualify and sign that cash. Would you compare, I'm trying to think of a perspective that I could, understand the gratification of getting that successful challenge because I've not yet completed <laughs> any. But would it be kind of like when you have a DNF and you finally get to go back and avenge it? It's just like so gratifying. Yeah. It feels so yeah. good. 
Yeah, I, you could almost say it's, um, if you were to go right down to the core of it, it's another smiley on the map. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we have people who will create a puzzle cache that's ridiculously difficult five and place it, post it on the doorstep of somebody they don't like or somebody who hates puzzles. <laughs> you know, it's like, and then it's just sitting there on the map whenever you open the map and it just taunts you. Mm-hmm. So... It's, it's the same sort of thing with challenge caches. When, when I look at the map and I see all those blue check marks and then I realize they're all challenge caches, you know, there, there's something satisfying about not just simply ignoring caches, sticking them on the ignore list to make them go away. It's like there's a physical container there. I can go and find it and sign it, but it's still on the map. I want to get it off the map. <laughs> I want that smiley. So it's, it's a, that base need to get the smileys on the map. <laughs> Oh, that's, <laughs> I love it. We, we all have that base need to get the smiley. Otherwise we wouldn't be doing this. Right. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you telling us about challenge caches and all that's from somebody who hasn't completed any, I see some around me and some of them just seem so far fetched for me to obtain mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's really great to hear more about it from somebody who's, who's done them and hidden them and mm-hmm. has experience with them. Yeah, I'd, I'd say try not to be intimidated if you're newer to geocaching. They, they might seem so far off and far-fetched, but if you think about it, you can still in, have the fun and adventure of finding the cache and then just mark it somewhere as a future goal. And at some point, you'll qualify and you'll be able to mark it as found. So, you know, it's you still have the full adventure of finding geocaches. That's great advice. So for cache highlight, we actually, and I believe we have time to do both, have two geocaches that you had in (laughs) mind to talk about. Mm. I'll I'll throw one more in that's challenge related. Oh, okay. Perfect. I just published a new challenge recently that uh, is related to Mingo which the, the challenge for that was to find, uh, so Mingo's coming of age challenge where you've got to find 21 geocaches that were placed on May 11th of any year. And 12 of those have to be on different years. Okay. <laughs> so it was, for it was somebody like not familiar with Mingo, break this down for us. Right. Okay. So Mingo is the oldest active geocache in the world. And uh, it's in, uh, Kansas, and it's a good road trip in the middle of nowhere. It's a roadside, simple geocache, but it's the oldest. And uh, so that challenge is kind of a tribute to, uh, to Mingo. It was supposed to be a 20th, 20 year anniversary challenge, but then all this stuff happened and made it a coming of age. 21 years of caches placed on May 11th. It's not too difficult if you know what you're looking for, but it was related to the subject. <laughs> <laughs> so if anybody wants to look up, that cache what's the gc code for that one the gc code is gc 9b 8ak okay and it's another good point because there might be challenges challenge caches in remote areas that you may never get to but it could be a fun challenge so why not try to qualify for it anyway you never know maybe you'll be in the area in the future and you'll then be able to sign it and log it as found that's true, because, I mean, I'm guilty of solving puzzle caches that are in different countries that I may never, ever go to <laughs> one day. So, And I know others have done that, too. So why not yep. do the same thing with challenge caches? Exactly. Okay. And for the other two, yes. we have complete polar opposite terrains here, <laughs> desert and mountains. So I can't wait to hear what's going on with these. So the first cache that I, uh, I tend to always go back to to highlight is GCWD13. It's Tomb Raider. It's in San Diego in California, placed in 2006. And it was my first five difficulty, five terrain cache. And the reason why this one stands out so much is because it's in the desert. It's about 85 kilometers east of San Diego. The posted coordinates are in downtown San Diego. And it's a puzzle that you've got to solve. The puzzle itself generally isn't too hard. But yeah, the final coordinates resolve to the desert, 80 kilometers east of San Diego, out in the desert. Uh, That obviously isn't allowed now because you've got a two-mile limit from the distance for a puzzle cache. Yeah, that's that's a big 
difference. <laughs> it was a surprise to see where the final was. <laughs> but uh, for that that particular cache, I was with some friends for another conference. Uh, at that time, there was San Diego Comic-Con, and none of them are geocachers. And this was 2009, so this was in my first year of caching. So I had my iPhone 3GS, and I was the only geocacher and the only one with GPS. And we drove a Prius out into the sand <laughs> in the desert. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Following barely any kind of road. Google had roads, so that was a plus. And uh, we had to go out to the trailhead, and then it's about a 15 to 20-minute uh, hike underground through the mud hills. And, uh, and then you kind of uh, come out into this funnel, and you climb up the side of this hill, and then you're standing on the top out in the middle of the beating red hot sun and you've got another hundred kilometers to or 100 kilometers 100 meters to hike uh, up and down these mud hills without losing your location because you could die if you don't get back to that same hole to go back down through the cave it was uh it was quite an adventure and it's only visited on average now i think about once or twice a year but it's still still active still going there so if you really want a, an extreme adventure, <laughs> make sure you go prepared. Lots of water, batteries, yeah. multiple GPS devices. Maybe something that's there. not a All Prius for the sand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was, we were driving in the desert and we we're like, I wonder how hot it is. So because we, we had the air, AC on, there were five mm-hmm. of us in the car at the time. And so we rolled down the window a bit, put my hand out and it was hot wind. It wasn't like a refreshing wind Mm-mm. that you can almost have anywhere. Just, you know, open the window, get some movement of air this was hot wind yeah no like opening the <laughs> oven just hot air coming yeah. at you yeah yeah suffice to say there was a lot of water in the back and it got used oh that's but, uh, yeah. good you at least were prepared for that but my mm-hmm. gosh that's that <laughs> sounds like it definitely earns that five five rating <laughs> mm-hmm. and i actually did take video for that uh for that uh geocache as well and put together a very very low resolution very rough video but, uh, that's that's on my channel as well. Memories. <laughs> wow, that's wild. That's jeez. At any point, were you worried about running out of gas and not getting back and being stuck out in the desert like that? I was a little bit of concerned, a little bit concerned. But the owner of the Prius, she was like, "Oh yeah, it'll be fine. No worries." <laughs> <laughs> she lived in California, I guess, so she'd been driving I guess she out was... there and. Yeah. <laughs> kind of used to it. Okay. <laughs> yep. oh. Wow. But it worked out. That is a wild adventure. <laughs> that that's that's kind of that set the bar for five fives in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of feel like you need something a little higher than a five five for that one compared mm. to some other five fives I've heard about. <laughs> Did any of the, the non geocachers start geocaching after that? Uh, I think maybe a couple of them had found some others, but uh, I guess they weren't, you know, it wasn't their, um, I want to say their cup of tea, but it was, wasn't what they liked to do for fun and all that. So Okay. They enjoyed it. Oh, they had a blast. <laughs> Everyone loved the experience, but uh, yeah, that was like <laughs> a high-end experience for a first cash find. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot different than going to an LPC, like a lot of first time cashers do that's very different advice than what we normally give which is <laughs> go for the low dt levels mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. that's awesome and for the other cache this one i believe you said was in iceland yes so the first one was a desert this one was at the top of a mountain in snow and ice at the uh the early midwinter in Iceland. <laughs> it's uh, Kristen Attender journey. The journey is the reward. It's GC 2D5 CP. It's uh, too difficulty. It's a four and a half terrain. And uh, it is at the top. It's, it's in a national park. And there are trails that, uh, that go around uh, that whole area, plus a couple of earth caches and waterfalls and stuff. But um, I did a, had to do a whole lot of research about whether this was doable and how safe it would be, uh, watch the weather, all that stuff. And uh, when I took my four-day trip to Iceland, I was like, okay, this, this is going to be my, my cash for the day sort of experience. I'm going to drive there, sleep, start out early in the morning, take my time, get back down, and then head off when I'm done. 
and it ended up being about a an eight hour round trip hike oh, and wow. it was uh, 16 kilometers i think but the reason why this was such an experience was because for one it was solo uh and it, it wasn't super high but it is my highest mountain <laughs> uh cash find and um the the weather turned out perfect it was beautiful and there's a glacier on one side and there was the tallest waterfall on the other side which i couldn't quite see from the side that i was on but um the the general experience is you follow the trails it's kind of it looks it's like a big shoe the uh, peninsula that you're climbing okay. up for the mountain and uh, so you climb up the side of it at first do a little bit of winding back and forth and then it's long and relatively flat and then it starts to get steep and then there's some switchbacks some back and forth as you go up the side of the mountain and then it gets to the difficult part where there's no more marked trails but there are stakes so you've got to try to follow whatever trail is there to get from stake to stake as you climb the last uh, section and for me I hadn't done a climb like that before so it was a first experience and so there was a couple of points where it was like it was getting so steep that it was five five steps five big steps i had lots of winter stuff on all prepped uh, and then i had to take a breath take a breather collect okay and then four big steps to keep going and then i had to take a breather and then it was three and then it was two and it literally got to the point where i, I could only take one and then i had to stop and i got to the point where i was thinking that i might not be able to make it and should i continue on or turn back and I still had, I think it was maybe 100 meters or so to go. It's like, it was right there. It was so close. And I was like, okay, I just rested for a bit. I'm like, I, I will never forgive myself if I don't go the whole way. <laughs> so I kind of recollected and then pushed on because at that point, the slope that I was on was starting to ease. And I just rounded the top and then it was pretty much clear sailing to the, uh, to the end there. And so at the very top, there's... Um, uh, I forget what's at, what it is at the top. I think it's a radio relay. I'm not quite sure, but uh, about 11, 1126 meters is the uh, the peak where this is. There's a guest book that you can sign, which is fairly typical for mountain climbers. Um, and then you got to find the cache. At that time, everything was frozen. Oh. <laughs> uh, but uh, and there's a little bit of controversy about the cache because some people think it's missing, and all, there's a lot of fines on it, and people aren't necessarily finding and signing the cash but uh anyway made it to the top it was literally a mountaintop experience the views were spectacular there was even mobile data signal <laughs> i wanted to do a live stream i wanted to like <laughs> hey guess where i am at the top wow. of a mountain in iceland <laughs> but um yeah if you look at the listing for gc2d5cp you can see the uh the the, the geology the structure the the, um, the glaciers and ice and everything the trails it's just it's just a spectacular thing and uh it's not always covered in snow and ice there are other people who do the experience and you can look at their pictures and they go in a t-shirt and shorts and get to the top <laughs> it's fine no when i was there it was heavy winter jacket you know the hood with the fur uh and and, and big winter boots it was it was winter <laughs> but quite an amazing awesome experience um I'd love to do it again in the summer and see what it looks like from there. <laughs> Go the other way this time. But, oh yeah, and there are a couple of spots where it is dangerous. So if you like look over uh, a little bit of the cliff, you can look down and it is a very steep fall. You could die. So you Oof. do have to be careful when you're up there. Um, but weather is the other big thing. You got to make sure that there's no inclement weather coming in while you're up there unexpectedly. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I love about Iceland is that the, I think they say the most dangerous animal in Iceland is the horses. <laughs> like, there's, there's no, there's no predators there. So you don't have there's to worry no about snakes, animals. There's no poisonous no. spiders. You don't have to right. worry about getting yep. mauled by weather. bears or mountain lions. That's amazing. Yep. That's, <laughs> that's so different than what we're used to here in the yep. U S and even Canada as far oh, yeah. as animals go. We're, yeah, I mean, not, not that most of us are out thing. there with dangerous animals all the time, but I mean, even <laughs> just snakes and stuff, we got to be cautious of out in the woods. And yeah, and they're uh, they they're very tourist heavy, so 
the search and rescue organizations, they, they know that there's a lot of people doing this kind of stuff. So if you're out there, you let them know where you're going and when, and then generally speaking, you're good to go as long as you are safe and you know what you're doing. <laughs> Especially sense. when you go inland. Inland is where all of the mountains and bad weather really happen. So you don't go inland unless you've got the right kind of vehicle, if you've got multiple okay. people, all that kind of stuff. But around the outside, that's the tourist stuff. The one road, the ring, Highway 1. Okay, so inland is more more, more dangerous extreme. than being on the coastal. Okay, yeah. good to know if I ever go to Iceland. I've got to ask, so if there's so much controversy about the cache currently with the people being able to find that one and logging it and everything, were you able to find the container when you were there? I didn't find... I wasn't sure if I would be able to find it or not. There were some indication of where it should be, but I couldn't confirm if it was actually there because, again, with all the ice, and that has been reported in past logs as well, uh, it could have been easily frozen under some rocks in a rock pile. And in my attempt to access the guest logbook in the uh, kind of enamel can sort of thing on the side of the uh, structure, I actually sliced my uh, a glove and my hand I didn't even feel it because <laughs> it was so cold. <laughs> oh my but then gosh. I saw the line and some blood. I'm like, okay, this isn't good. So I didn't, I didn't put too much effort in searching around to try to find the container. But, and I really, I don't, I don't recommend it and I don't uh, often support it. But the cash owner has said they allowed, if you are at that, uh, that structure and you uh, have taken a photo, you basically have proved that you're there, then they allow your find log to stand. Okay. Technically, you're not supposed to do that, and there can be some blowback from reviewers. And just looking at the recent logs now, there's another reviewer log uh, reminding the owner that they have to maintain their cash. I yeah, that would be one that I feel like um, doesn't get a lot of just random maintenance checks done on if it's that crazy of a hike just to get mm -hmm. up there. Mm -hmm. So I like to think that I would have found it <laughs> and that's usually what I go by. But uh, yeah, I didn't get my name on either the guest book uh, for the mountain hike or the, the cash log, unfortunately, but I would gladly go back to do that again. It's such a fantastic. Hike. I bet the BUF there was absolutely amazing. Oh yeah. And this, that's one of the uh, examples. So I mentioned earlier that, um, before I was doing vlogging, this trip was one where I took some short video clips. So on my channel, there are a few uh, Iceland clips, very short, uh, just scenes looking around. And one of them is my experience near the top of Kristina Tinder. And uh, yeah, I ha had to document that. It was just beautiful. Oh, that sounds awesome. I hope to get there one day and see some of those in person. Mm. Well, Thank you so much for joining us tonight. And we'll definitely have links to your, your vlog channel and your social medias in the show notes for people to get easy access to those or they can just search cash and line. It does come up. I tried mm -hmm. it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very unique name. Yes, <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, there's, a lot that are very similar, but yours is fairly unique. So it definitely makes it a lot easier to locate and know for sure we've got the right one. Mm. So thank you so much for talking to us about your blog and challenge caches and these cache highlights. Your, your adventures sound like they're absolutely amazing. And I've watched some of your videos. It, it's an awesome channel. I recommend it. I'm going to have to go check out some of these Iceland ones and, and see the views <laughs> that way. So thank you, thank so, you so much. much. And, and again, the whole thing is, you know, my favorite thing about geocaching is going out and having that adventure. And, uh, you know, it's a healthy activity. It's social. It's mentally healthy. It's physically healthy. Uh, and it broadens your horizons you're doing things and seeing things you've never done or seen before it's just like everything about this hobby is just so great so it's just that it's a privilege to be able to share these kinds of experiences and adventures and it's not like um say people who do these world traveling adventures and you, you may never be able to do that it's like geocaching is stuff you can do in your backyard it's like it's things that 
are accessible to almost everybody. So it's, it's fun to be, and even encouraging other people to share their adventures on social media, whether photography or videos, it's like a, a group effort to lift everybody up in being healthy in every way. <laughs> it is, because it is really neat when you see other people sharing the neat things they've discovered while geocaching or a neat cache container or just a beautiful view that they saw while they were there. It's, it's fun mm -hmm. to see those things. So. Mm -hmm. I agree. Definitely share your experiences somehow. Even if you make one video a year and submit it to the Geocaching International Film Festival. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Geocache Adventures with me, Shadow Dragon One. Have you heard of FTF Magazine? It's the magazine for geocachers. It is full of articles and photos, all sent in by geocachers like you. In fact, some of the guests that you've heard on this show have submitted articles to Geocacher Magazine. They have all kinds of neat stuff and publish achievements that are sent in by Geocacher. So if you have an achievement you want to celebrate, send it in and they will add it to the magazine. It is really cool. I recommend it. I subscribe to it myself and I love it. Go check it out at ftfgeo.com. That's ftfgeo.com and let them know Shadow Dragon 1 sent you. Would you like to be a guest on the show? Do you have a topic you'd like to hear more about? Let me know at geocacheadventures.org. Go over to the contact page and you can send me a message there. It has the podcast email that you can email me to, or you can reach out to Shadow Dragon 1 on geocaching.com. geocacheadventures.org also has a store page now. You can go over there geocacheadventures.org and click on the store page in the menu bar and check it out. Got some great stuff over there for you.